Genesis 24. Now, if you've read through Genesis, as we've been going through it on Sunday mornings, perhaps you've said, I just want to go ahead and read through Genesis. And you got to 24. Or if you're looking at Genesis 24 for the first time in a long time, right now, as I've told you to open up to it, it doesn't take a long look to see, oh, this is a longer chapter. And if you go to the end, you see that Genesis 24 is 67 verses. So it is a longer chapter in Genesis. So when you hear me say what I'm about to say this morning, you might panic. We're going to go through Genesis 24. But we're going to be, uh, we're going to be here in Genesis 24 um, probably this week and next week. Because today I want to point out some more practical things uh, and, and again some, some bigger picture ideas. I know those of you who have been here Throughout the study, you've heard me say big picture, and um, hopefully by now, that phrase or that thought is ingrained in your mind, and you say, oh, as we're going through Genesis, we do need to be picking up on these big picture ideas and how it all fits together. <clears throat> next week, next week we may take some time to look at some of the more immediate details, how they took oaths back in these days, and the significance of of the land, and, and so on and so forth. Um, but today, I will say this, um, my goal, y'all have heard me say this over and over again, that the fact that God is sovereign should bring us great joy. The fact that God is sovereign should give us confidence. The fact that God is over all things should give us great joy. Um, and so, my prayer is that as we as we point some things out, from Genesis 24 and what this whole narrative is pertaining to. And as we as we take a brief look back at Adam and Eve, Noah, and, and all the way up through Abraham, that, that we'll get a, a clearer picture of the fact that, oh, we continue to live our lives, and the fact that God is sovereign should give us great freedom and making our decisions and pursuing goals and, and things of that nature, we're we're free. And so, um, I'll say it that way. My prayer is that through pointing out some of these practical uh, observations, that we recognize we do have a greater freedom through faith than maybe we had realized before. And so... Before I belabor my opening remarks, let me just go ahead. What we're going to do, Genesis chapter 24 is a, is a, a narrative, a narration of Abraham finding a daughter for Isaac. We know, of course, that Isaac is the, the promised son. We've been through that. Isaac was the son promised to Abraham uh, and Sarah. That God would give them a son. Even though Sarah was barren. And past the age of childbearing. Even though Abraham was a hundred years old. Isaac was born. Now at this point in the story. You can view it as a transition. Sarah has already passed away. Abraham is up in years. To put, to put it that way. Isaac is born. Isaac is of the age that Abraham is obviously looking for a wife for Isaac. And over over these next couple of chapters, the uh, 
the focus of Genesis is going to shift from Abraham and Sarah, who we've been studying for weeks and weeks, and it's going to shift to Abraham or Isaac and Rebekah. As we kind of turn the chapter on the history of Israel. It started with Abraham and then it has shifted to Isaac. So here in this chapter, it's one great big 67 verse narration of how Abraham went about finding a wife for Isaac. In verses 1 through 10, or verses 1 through 9, Abraham and his servant, uh, the servant makes an oath with Abraham to find a wife for Isaac, but not in the land of Canaan, to go back to where Abraham started his journey, to go back to his own kindred and find a wife for Isaac there. And the oath is made. And you see in that, you see Abraham's faithfulness to God in that he is trusting and he has faith that he is going to do things the way that God intends for them to be done and that he's not just going to take a wife for his son out of the land of Canaan, but it will be from his own kindred. And there's significance there. But we see this oath being made between Abraham and his servant in verses 1 through 9. And then, verses 10 through 21, we see the servant going on his way, going back to uh, the land of Abraham, and pleading with God that God would show Himself faithful, and that, uh, that the one that has been set apart for, uh, for Isaac would be the one who comes and, and allows the servant to have a drink. But then she will also say, here, let me draw water for your camels as well, and so he's 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 asking God to to just di- direct their paths and to bring this future bride of Isaac to him. And he says specifically, um, in verse twelve, the servant says, "O Lord God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham." And so it's this plea with God to show His steadfast love, to make it known, to make this journey a success, to make sure that this future wife of Isaac does come and the servant meets her. And then sure enough, in verse 15 of chapter 24, it says, Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her Shoulder. So before he had even finished speaking, here comes Rebecca. For those of us who are familiar with the Genesis account scripture, we know that Rebecca is the one that, that Isaac will marry. But here we just see that this is a this is an answer to the plea of the servant. Verse sixteen says the young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar. And came up, then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. And she said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. 
Verse 22, the camels, when the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring, weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms, weighing ten gold shekels, and said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? And so at this point, you can see the servant is a little bit excited, and he's adorning her with gifts from, from Abraham and asking, Take me, is there is there room for us in, in your home tonight? And so the next... The next good chunk of verses, all the way through verse 49, to sum it up. She brings the servant back to her home. He's welcomed. The news is explained why he's there. Uh, Abraham has sent me to get a wife for his son. He made me swear. He made me take an oath that I would not take a woman from the Canaanites, but I would take a woman from his kindred here in this land. And then he he retells the entire story of what has happened to Rebecca's household. We'll pick it up in verse 37. He says, My master made me swear, saying, You will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, in whose land I dwell. But you will go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. I said to my master, Perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, the Lord before whom I have walked will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You will take a wife for my son, for my clan and for my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath when you come to my clan. And if they will not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. So Abraham's words to his servant was this, because the servant had a concern. He said, what if, what if there's not a woman there? What if she won't come back with me? Like, what if I come back empty-handed? Are you going to be upset with me? Is that how bad? Of, how big of a deal is it? How bad will it be if I come back empty-handed? And Abraham's answer again shows his faith and his utmost confidence in God at this point. He tells his servant, "The Lord, before whom I have walked, He will send His angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife for my son, for my clan, and for my father's house." There's confidence there. There's faith. And for a moment, I do just want to sit on that and, and, and put it back in your head. As, as we've studied the life of Abraham, there have been moments where Abraham stumbled, so to speak. There have been moments where Abraham lacked faith. There have been, Abraham, there have been moments where Abraham kind of stumbled along his way in his journey in following the Lord. But recently... In a couple more of these recent accounts that we've looked at Abraham's life, we've seen like this steadfast, God is who He says He is, I know what we need to do type faith. God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, the promised son, and Abraham tells his servants, we're going to go up on this mountain and we're going to return. And we talked about the fact that what kind of faith that took to make that kind of a statement. Abraham's on a mission to go take Isaac up there and to sacrifice Isaac because that's what the what, what God has requested. And he tells his servants, we are going to go up. And when we return, you see faith. We talked about that. Even in purchasing a burial uh, spot for, for Sarah, a cave for Sarah. That showed faith because he purchased land in Canaan. Land that... He doesn't possess Canaan land yet. He doesn't possess the promised land yet. But that's where he decided to bury Sarah. 
which shows faith in the promise of God that that will be Abraham's land. That will be the land of his descendants. And here we see his servant with a concern and Abraham just says, the God that I serve, God whom I have walked before, he will, he will be with you. An angel will go before you and he will prosper your way. And sure enough, that's exactly how it came to be. And so in verse 42, he tells Rebekah's household, he said, I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if you now are prospering the way that I go, behold, I'm standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water, to whom I shall say, please give me a little water from your jar to drink, and who will say to me, drink, and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. And he tells them, before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebecca came out with a water jar on her shoulder and she went down to the spring and drew water. And I said to her, please let me drink. She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, drink, and I will give your camels drink also. So I drank and she gave the camels drink also. And so it's just a, I mean, it's, it, it, it's tip for tat. He's telling them everything, exactly how it happened. He's giving an honest account Abraham sent me, I came here, I offered up a prayer, I offered up a plea with the Lord, and He brought it about just as I had asked, and so here I am. And to sum it all up, He basically says, I'm here to take Rebecca with me. <laughs> to, be, to be Isaac's wife. And they do make a plea, they say, well, give her ten days. And he says, no, I, I really wish that she would come. The, the command has been that, that, that she would come now. And so they said, let her decide. And she was willing to go. And so the servant took Rebecca back. And as they were coming, they, as they were coming up to the land, Isaac was there in verse 66. The very end of the chapter now, it says, The servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. And Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. And so again, you kind of see this transition. Sarah has, Sarah has been the female focal point, and now Rebekah comes into play. Abraham is still alive and now he's finding a wife for Isaac and, and in a couple of chapters Isaac will be the, the male focal point, the headship of Israel after Abraham passes from the scene. And we also see that brief but powerful note. Isaac had lost his mom. Sarah had died and was buried. And through his father finding him as a wife and Rebekah becoming his wife, it says that Isaac was comforted after his mother's Death. And so just a very brief summary of Genesis 24 there. And as I said, I want to be very, I want to try to be, because I'm not, I'll, I'll be honest, I'm not always the best when I try to do this, but I'm going to try to be as practical and as down to earth as I can be with these observations that I make today. If we take a step back here and we just say, well, well what really happened in this account? We have a father who's seeking to find a wife for a son. Now, obviously, the customs of their day and the customs of our day are certainly not the same. 
But what is the same is we would say, well, when we have children and they become old enough to really date and consider marriage, we enjoy it. We look forward to the day where our children will find a spouse and start a family of their own and, and become men and women of God and will step into that role. We look forward to that. That's a joyous occasion. We still, we still celebrate weddings today like they celebrated union and marriage in those days. The customs might not be the same, but the joy of marriage is still the same. So we have a father who desires to find a wife for his son. We have a servant who, being obedient to his master, he, he goes out and he's a part of this. He made an oath with Abraham and he's going and, and he makes a plea to God. And we see God being faithful over all of this, which, again, if you've been with us throughout our Genesis study, God is faithful, God is faithful, God is faithful. Let that be burned into your memory. But we see a man who makes a plea with God. God, prosper this journey. Show your faithfulness to my master Abraham. Bring this woman. And then we see Rebecca. Now, what did Rebecca do in this? She came to draw water. She shows hospitality. The servant says, May I have a drink? She says, Sure. But not only that, let me draw water for your camels also. I can tell you've been traveling. He might have looked weary. She says, Not only that, let me I'll, I'll get water for your camels also. She shows hospitality. That's normal. We would say, well, that's normal, especially around here in the South, right? We better have some Southern hospitality. Let me take care of y'all. Y'all look like y'all been traveling. Do you need a drink? You need anything to eat? Let me take care of you. The servant ends up within, within the household there, within the clan there. And he tells this story and they, they share a meal together. They, they converse and, and there's an agreement made. There's an arrangement made. Okay, yes, she can go. Give her ten days. Well, no, need her to, to go ahead and come back. Okay, well, let her decide. Rebecca says, yeah, I'm willing to go. I'm willing to go. So the servant takes her back and Isaac takes her as his wife. Now, when we take a step back and look at it that way, we'd say, well, that's not very profound. Like That just sounds like life as usual, right? Are we on the same page so far? That just sounds like normal everyday life. People who raise children, there's going to come a time where those children get married, right? There's other people that, that sometimes play a part in, in bringing um, <clears throat> spouses together. Our children have friends. Their friends might have played a part in getting them to go on their first date or something like that. And I'm not trying to, I'm not, I'm not trying to play too much with this text. I'm just, the customs are different. But there's other people involved in our friends' lives and in our family's lives. They'll celebrate the union as well. They'll celebrate the marriage as well. But that's just normal everyday life. Rebecca just showed hospitality. And God used that. Because a plea had been made from the servant to God. But Rebecca was just showing hospitality. The guy says, is there room for me and, and, and the, all of the animals here to, to come to your place and explain more of what's going on here? He's able to give her gifts, to give her bracelets and, and adornments from Abraham's goods. And he gives the family, when they, when they agree to all of this, he gives the family out of the abundance of Abraham's goods. Which that is a testimony of God's faithfulness. But when we really look at this and say, well, a father 
found a wife for a son. Children who get married, children who find a spouse, that's pretty normal stuff. Now we know that it's profound in the sense that God was over this. I'll put it this way. There was never a chance that Rebecca wasn't going to be at the well that day. There was never a chance that Isaac wasn't going to have a wife. So now we're kind of getting into more of the big picture kind of profound stuff because God is in it. God's over all things. He's sovereign. There's no way that God would give Abraham and Sarah a son, Isaac, and then forget to prepare a wife for Isaac. There's no way that God would make promises to Abraham saying, your offspring will outnumber the stars and the sands uh, on earth. And, and then I'm going to give you Isaac and your offspring, which is going to outnumber the stars. And then he would forget to prepare a wife for Isaac so that the offspring could continue. Now, that's not going to happen. Never in a million years. All of this fits into God's overarching sovereign plan. But what does it look like on our end? What does it look like on Abraham's end? Life. And as simple as that may sound, I really want us to grasp that today. Because I feel like sometimes we get tripped up when our life that we're living doesn't feel profound. When it doesn't seem like we're doing great things for God. Or when it doesn't seem like there's a lot going on. We can kind of start to feel like, well, am I doing what God would have me to do? Is God still working? Like, is God still moving? Or do I need to be doing something different? Because I just feel like I'm living a normal, everyday, average Joe life. And that's why I want us to take a step back and realize it's just a, a father planning to find a wife for a son. There's nothing out of the norm there, right? But let's look at Abraham and Sarah's life. Even when you look at their life. Now, yes, it includes the direct call of from God to Abraham. Get up and go to a land that I will prepare for you. But as Abraham went on his journey, what did it look like? It just looked like a man who had his family and they were going and they were traveling. And they traveled through different places on their journey, on their way. And there was there was some exciting stuff that happened. Like there was there was a battle where some kings were defeated. He passed through Egypt and he didn't know what was going on there. And he he came up with a plan because he got scared and he he didn't know if his life was in danger or not. And so he got. But even that isn't that us sometimes. Sometimes we we get into moments where we feel like we've got to take matters into our own hands and we we come up with a plan or come up with a scheme and then later we're like I really didn't have to worry about all that. I could have just. I could have just kept going like normal and I didn't have to get caught up doing all that stuff. That happened a couple of times for Abraham and Sarah. And then they, they tried to take matters into their own hands and they tried to do it their own way sometimes. And But they're just on a journey. And throughout that journey, they were, they were awaiting a child. They wanted a child. God had promised them a child. But that child was going to come when God wanted it. And again, not trying to be irreverent or not trying to play fast and loose with Scripture. I'm not saying that this is direct things we should be learning, but if we just take these things for, for what they are on a practical level, that's just normal life. Most men and women, when they come together in marriage, they desire children. They desire to start a family. 
Sometimes that man and that, and that woman, they might have difficulties in having a child. Sometimes they might not be able to, to get pregnant and begin their family when they want to, but they, have to, they may have to wait and then later on. In some cases, it may be today that the, even the doctors may say, you'll never have children. But then at some point later on, miraculously, it's like, oh, we're having a baby. It's just life as usual. Take it a step back further, and Noah, before the flood came, which was very profound, very supernatural. But before that, yes, there's a direct command from God. But what was Noah doing during that time before the flood? Working. Just working. Building an ark and giving a testimony of what God had said. He was working and proclaiming truth. He was working and proclaiming truth. And clearly, he was tending to his family and still doing a pretty good job taking care of his family and leading his family. Because who helped him build the boat? Well, it was probably Noah and the sons, right? And his family stayed together during that time. What does that look like? Life as usual. Men, work, lead the family, proclaim truth. I mean, you could, you could, turn, a, you could turn that into a three-point sermon for men. <laughs> the way the world is today and how people like their three-point sermons. Work, serve, do your job, lead your family well, and proclaim the truth. That's what Noah was doing. He was working, being obedient to God, building that boat, working hard. Leading his family, taking care of his family. And that includes spiritually. You could say, well, what was Noah telling his family? We're building this ark because God said to do this. We're serving God. We're being obedient to God. And what was Noah telling everybody around him? What God had spoken. He was proclaiming the truth. What does that, is that profound? No. What are we called to do as Christians? Live our lives. Serve the Lord. Live a life for His glory. What does that include? Work. Home life, worship, normal stuff. Normal, everyday, run-of-the-mill stuff. What makes our life profound, what gives our life significance, isn't anything that we do or anything that we are. The significance comes from the fact that we are His. And we acknowledge that He is working all things together for our good. And He is working all things according to His eternal purposes. But what is our responsibility? Live life for His glory. What does that look like? Work. We've got a family, home life, family. We're out in the workforce. We're to, we're to be a testament of truth. We're to proclaim truth wherever we go. We exist for His glory wherever we are. Our words should glorify Him. Our actions should glorify Him. All of our life should glorify Him. It's just normal everyday living. Take a step back even further from Noah and go all the way back to Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and multiply, subdue the earth, and take dominion over it. If we could give Adam an occupation, what was his occupation? We'll see who's awake this morning. What would, what would probably have been Adam's occupation if we had to give him a career title today? He tended the garden. Farmer. Be fruitful and multiply, what does that mean? Adam and Eve were supposed to have kids, y'all. That's all that means. 
So work hard. Take care of the earth. Work hard. Eat. Because the Lord told them, I've given you of every tree to eat. Everything that yields fruit, eat. Be fruitful and multiply. So do the earth. What about the animals? Who, who was overseeing the animals? Now again, you, he was a farmer. He, he had livestock. He had, he had animals. And he was overseeing the plants and everything else. So what were they to do? Work. Start a family. Have a family. Live life. Those were literally the commands from God at the beginning of creation. Be fruitful and multiply. Subdue the earth. When you look at that and you say, it was really have a family. Have a family and take care of what I've given you. Does that sound profound? Does that sound like some unattainable goal? Be fruitful and multiply, have a family, subdue the earth, which at that time Adam and Eve, all of the earth, but be fruitful and multiply and take care of what I've given you. Does that sound profound or does that sound normal, average, everyday, run of the mill? That just sounds like regular life, right? When we look at the people, Adam and Eve, even Cain and Abel, Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Abraham, Hagar, Ishmael, Isaac, Sarah. When we look at the the people and we say, well, what have they been doing this whole time? Life. Life. And they've had highs and lows. They've had some really high highs and some really low lows. Right? Now, at other times when I brought this particular portion up, and I do want to be clear on this too, what is one thing beyond a shadow of a doubt mankind is consistent in? Mankind is consistent in sin. From the beginning, there has been one thing that mankind is really, really good at. And yeah, I'm, I'm trying to be a little funny with that, a little humorous. Mankind is really, really good at rebelling against God, not doing what God said to do, doubting God. Questioning God. Right? We've seen that over and over and over again. But there have been moments where God's people, Abraham, Noah built the ark, right? You could say that's a high spot. That's a high point. Noah was told to build the ark. He built the ark. And what did the ark do for him? Kept him safe during the flood. Right? There's been some. Abraham, he has exemplified faith at times because of God's grace. If there is one thing, and there's many, but if there is one thing that we could say, what has God done during all of this? What has God been very consistent at? We could say God is faithful. God is faithful. He gave promises at the very beginning of Genesis, and He has done nothing but make good on those promises. Over and over and over again. And He's moving His plan forward. In Genesis 3, he said the seed of the serpent would be crushed by the seed of the woman. We're still in Genesis. But already the groundwork has been laid and progress has been made, building up to the point of when Christ will come and be born of a woman and will ultimately crush the head of the serpent. And if I can add one more thing, we could say, here it is again, God is sovereign. Did any of Adam and Eve's mistakes or mess-ups hinder God's plan? 
No. When, when Cain murdered Abel, did that stop God's plan from working out? No. Even when God had to send a flood to destroy all of creation, did that trip up God in any way? Did that cause God to stumble? Did that hinder His plans in any way? No. When, when, when Abraham lied and, and he got Sarah to be in on the lie and told, and told uh, Pharaoh that this is not my wife. Did, what, did God have to make an adjustment and say, oh, I didn't expect that to happen. Again, not speaking irreverently. Just no. God has been executing His plan with perfection throughout this entire event. Even when Abraham and Sarah concocted a plan and said, oh, this is how God's going to give us a son. Abraham, you go into Hagar and she'll give you a son and he'll be the one. Did God say, now I'm going to have to do something I didn't plan on doing? No. God was still able to go about carrying out His plan Nothing can thwart God's plans. Nothing can hinder the plans of God. And we can rest in that. We can relax in that. Even Listen, here's what that means. Just to be totally blunt or transparent with it, you could word it this way. Spiritually speaking, man's sinfulness doesn't hinder the sovereignty of God. Man's sinfulness doesn't hinder the plans of God. But to put it in layman's terms where we could really understand what we're doing, for our own sake today, just being practical... Our own stupidity doesn't hinder the plans of God. When we make mistakes, when we make wrong choices, that still doesn't hinder God. In fact, God is so great that His overarching plans and the things that He has ordained for all creation include our stupidity and include our mistakes and our missteps. Right? There's freedom in that. Because here's what I think happens sometimes. Even for us as believers. And, and if I could just give a brief personal testimony here that maybe will help tie this in even more so. When I was growing up, it was a really common thing. At chapel services at Pinewood, at youth camps in the service, at VBS at church. It was a real big thing. You would always hear preachers preach on God's will for your life. But they would preach about it in such a way that like, to me, it was almost like God had His will for my life like behind His back. But He was telling me we were playing a game of hide and seek. Or we were playing a game of hot or cold. Y'all remember playing that game? Oh, you're getting warmer. You're getting warm. Oh, no, no. You're freezing cold, right? But the whole time, God had His will for my life like behind His back in His hands. And He was just messing with me. Like, okay, Caleb, go, go, go try to find my will for your life. You're getting warmer, colder, you colder now. But the whole time it was like hidden, but it was hidden like in his hands. Like it was this game that I thought I was never going to win. And there was so much pressure because the way that God's will was talked about was, you know, there's a specific college God wants you to go to. There's a specific person that God has for you. And if you marry the wrong person, or if you go to the wrong college, or if you if you start the wrong career, you'll never be as happy as God wants you to be. You need to be right where He has placed you in His perfect will. Now, there's some truth to that. 
God does have a will for His people. We exist for His glory. God's will for us is our sanctification. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. God's will for us is that we would lay down our lives as living sacrifices for His glory. But there's freedom in the other things that were mentioned. Finding a wife. Isaac and Rebecca. There's freedom. How many of you, how many of you have, have ever actually listened or you know the name John MacArthur? I love what he says. He says, I, he says, I still get people that ask me like, well, how did you know, how did you know that your wife was the one for you? How did you know that she was the right choice to make that you needed to marry her? And his answer is, because I wanted to. And there's Christians, there's Christians that like, they have a problem with that, with that answer. But what he's bringing up with that answer is the fact that John MacArthur is a man who was living his life in an effort to please God, to to glorify God in all things. John MacArthur is was a man who knew what God's Word said about marriage, about a spouse, about the type of person you should marry. And so what he's saying is, when it came to the point where he was like, I want to marry her, there was freedom there. Because he knew... I want to glorify God. She wants to glorify God. We want to glorify God together. There's nothing to worry about. There's no, is she the wrong one? God, if you could just give me this clear sign that she... If you have a desire to go into the, the agricultural field, if you've got a desire to go into to forestry, or if you've got a desire to go into... The, the electrical field or, or go to be a pilot or anything else. If you have that desire, the question isn't, is this the exact career? The question is, can you glorify God as a pilot? Can you glorify God as a farmer? Can you glorify God as whatever field that you desire to be? Can you glorify God as a doctor? Can you glorify God as a vet? Can you glorify, to use a, I mean, just, just to be, can you glorify God as a clown in a circus? Like, whatever you desire to be, the question is, can you glorify God with it? Does it glorify God? Do you have the opportunity to glorify God as you work and to bring people around you closer to God? If the answer is yes, go for it. There's freedom. And if you say, but what if I make a mistake? What if I make the wrong choice? God is bigger than your mistakes and God's bigger than your wrong choices. There's freedom. You don't have to worry that God's going to somehow like get angry with you and turn His back on you because you made a mistake. God expects that to happen. God's not looking at us saying, you better not make any bad decisions. You better not make any wrong decisions. You better not make any mistakes. In fact, much of God's sanctification work, sanctifying work in our lives comes through us when we make our mistakes. When we find ourselves brought low. Maybe we did try to pursue a sin that we, we knew better than to pursue that sin. Maybe it was just an honest mistake. I thought this was going to be a, a, a wise decision, but it was not. The bottom kind of fell out. And now I don't know what, what's going to happen. God's sanctifying work in our lives includes all of that. There's freedom in that. There's freedom in that. And that's why I wanted to, to use this at, this at this point in the life of Abraham. I, I know this may seem like an odd thing, but it just hit me. And we've been talking about the simplicity of the gospel because we had the conference and everything else. And I, 
I guess the word simplicity has just been on my mind a lot. And as I was reading this, I said, you know, from when we look at what man has been doing, when we look at the, the human characters of this narrative, it's really simple. They've just been living life. They make, they make mistakes. They fall short. They make some good decisions. They're disobedient to God. They rebel against God. They're obedient to God. They serve God at times. The constant of our lives is that God is faithful. God is sovereign. What is not constant in our, in our lives is us. We will have moments where we, we feel, to use some modern, we feel like we're on fire for God. Or we feel like things are going great. And then we're going to have times where we feel low. We feel far from God. We're going to have times where we're, we're really super aware of sin and we're really sensitive to sin and we're, we're pushing back against sin and we're killing sin like we're supposed to. But we may also have times where we are giving in to sin. And my aim this morning is just to, to help us all understand like that's normal. And it's okay. It's okay. Look at the life of Abraham. What do you see? You see a man who is full of flaws. Made mistakes. Fell short. Doubted. Got anxious. Feared for his own life. To the extent that really you could say he kind of put his wife in danger. What do we see in Noah? In Noah, we see a man who was obedient. But as soon as he got off the ark, what did he do? He got drunk. He got drunk and passed out in his tent. That's what he did. After, after he built an altar and worshipped God. He built an altar, he built an altar and worshipped God, and the next thing we read is that he's passed out in his tent drunk. Adam and Eve, what do we read? They walked with God in the garden. But they rebelled. They ate of that tree. They were cast out of the garden. God gave them children still and they raised those children. Those children were pretty hard-headed and stubborn and obnoxious. In fact, uh, so much so that one of the brothers killed his brother. That's having some pretty wild and rambunctious children, y'all. That's having some family problems right there. Did any of it hinder God? That's what I want us to understand. <clears throat> we are called. We are called to live lives for His glory. We are called to make wise, informed, biblical decisions where we seek to honor God. We are called to do that. But if we are seeking to make wise informed decisions for His glory, then we have freedom. Now hear what I'm saying. We have freedom to mess up. That doesn't mean that if we sin, we can just, oh well I sin, who cares? I'm saying, we have freedom to make a mistake. And we're going to make mistakes at times. And when we take a misstep, when we make a decision that we look back on and we say, that wasn't the best decision. We're still free in the sense that we can say, and God, not even that hindered you. Thank you, God, 
that, that my foolishness and my stupidity at times can never hinder you at all. God is faithful. We can live with the confidence that God is for us. We live with the confidence that God is for us. He has given us His promises. And He is working all things together for our good. That should give us great freedom. That should give us great joy. Not freedom to sin as we want to sin. Not freedom to abuse the grace of God. But freedom to live. Freedom to just live and enjoy the life that God has given us. So what does all of this have to do with Genesis 24? In Genesis 24, the father was seeking a wife for a son. We started in John 10. And to close, some of you may still be wondering, why did Caleb read John 10? And we're in Genesis 24. I read John 10 for this reason. Abraham was looking for a bride for Isaac. That bride was never not going to be there. In fact, that bride was never not going to like work with the servant and end up going home to Isaac. Why? Because God's sovereign. Everything worked out according to His plan. What did it look like underneath that? It looked like a father getting his servant to go get a wife and bring that wife back for a son. But what really was it from heaven's vantage point or God's vantage point? God was just bringing His plan together. The Father, the eternal Father, has prepared a bride for His Son. And that bride is made up of every believer from every tribe, tongue, and uh, nation who turns to Christ in repentance and faith. And there is not a chance. There is no chance, zero, that anyone who is meant to be a part of that bride will not listen to And come home to Christ. It's a done deal. It's a done deal. The bride of Christ. Will be. His bride eternally. And there will not be a single part of that bride. Person of that bride. Missing. They will listen and they will come to him. How do we know that? We read from John 10. The sheep hear his voice and they will follow him. They won't follow the voice of another. But what does that look like underneath? Not from heaven's vantage point. From our vantage point, what does that look like? We share the gospel. We share the testimony of Christ. It goes out. Those with ears to hear will hear and they will follow. So even in this narrative, a wife for Isaac, we see a a flash or a shadow that goes towards Christ. Christ has a bride. Isaac was the promised son. Jesus is the promised son. There was a wife found for Isaac. There is a wife found and prepared for the son. The eternal son. And that's us. And the way that that wife is brought home to Christ is through the proclamation of the gospel. And those who have ears to hear will hear and they will come. And there is not a chance that any of them will be left behind or forgotten about. The bride of Christ will be His Eternally. And will be His fully. And we can rest in that. Why? Because God is sovereign. He's working all things according to His own counsel. So I know that this sermon was a bit different. Um, Like I said, I I know this to be a fact. I'm not saying this for sympathy or any other thing. When I try to preach a sermon like this, it's 50-50. It might land or it might not land at all. If it landed for you today, praise God. If it didn't land for you today, see you next week. Okay?
There is great freedom and understanding that God is sovereign. We're just expected to, to live lives for His glory. If you make a mistake, you made a mistake. God doesn't expect you to be perfect. Look to, look to Christ. And in the bigger picture, as a, as a bride was prepared for Isaac, a bride has been prepared for Christ. How can we know that we are a part of that bride? How can we know that we are a part of the body of Christ? Repent and believe. Turn to Christ for salvation from your sins. Our only hope of salvation is Christ alone. That's it. Have you turned from your own sin and placed your faith in Jesus Christ and His saving work upon the cross? That's how we can know. So, I pray that this was a help. Pray that it was a benefit.